My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. Yeah, so who are we talking about today, Matt? No one was willing to touch the black book. And then Gawker finally published it with some accompanying articles that I'd written. And then all of a sudden, the floodgates open on the black book. And everybody's talking about the black book. And tons of ink have been spilt on the black book. And what's kind of disheartening about that is only one publication gave me credit for bringing the black book to light. And the rest of them nothing about Nick Bryan. So it's kind of a, I find myself, I was, there was going to be that Epstein document dump in early January. And I was called by CNN and we talked and they said, because I was the guy that put the blank book on the internet, they wanted me to talk about this cache of documents that was going to be made public. And so I had text messages with this producer throughout the day. And my, I started an organization called Epstein Justice because these perpetrators need to go to prison. And we have to understand why our government is covering up child trafficking, which is aiding and abetting child trafficking. So I started this organization. It's a 501c3 nonprofit organization. And the thing that I wanted to stress with this producer was that I wanted to talk about Epstein justice. I didn't mind talking about the black book. I didn't mind talking about the cache of documents that were about to be made public, but I wanted to talk about Epstein justice. So that was my last text to him. And then the next text I got from him is, we're gonna go in a different direction. So, and the media is, I mean, that's what the media has done. It's just dug up salacious dirt on Epstein and and his cohorts. No media has streamed for justice. That's how bankrupt, ethically bankrupt our media is. That all these kids have been trafficked and the media only wants to dig up salacious dirt. I'm not aware, and I keep track of Epstein articles, I'm not aware of a single publication that has screamed for justice. Nick Bryant joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Thank you for tuning in and go to EpsteinJustice.com for more information. All right, ladies and gentlemen, here we are back again on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And with me today is a very special guest, someone who I've been aware of for a while. And I think the entire country 
has been aware of this man, whether they knew his name or not, because thanks to him, we've learned a great deal of information about, well, uh, as one author puts it, the secret history of America. We're going to be entertaining Nick Bryant here on the show. He's an author, a journalist, and as I said, broke the Epstein story. So without further ado, Nick, it's a supreme pleasure to have you here on the show. It's a true honor for folks who surprisingly may not have heard of you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how your career in journalism started. I'm, I started a writing career. I was in academia for five years. I studied philosophy in college and I was in academia for five years. And I wrote, my job there was to write papers on um, lower socioeconomic children and healthcare and other problems that they have and couch it in ethical terminology to show that basically I wanted to show what was the right thing ethically and how it could be done financially. And I did that for five years. And that culminated in a book I wrote called America's Children Trying for Tragedy. I co-authored that. And it showed the really egregious problems that lower socioeconomic children have in the United States. And then I left academia in 1995 and I moved to New York City and I started a freelance journalism career at that point. And I was, my freelance journal, journalism career was going right along and uh, it was going well. And I was living in the village and having a wonderful time as a freelance writer. And then I was talking to an editor and he said, I'd written about serial killers and Hells Angels and ma the mafia. So I kind of had this reputation of, writing dark stuff. And he said, pitch me dark stories. I said, well, how dark do you want? He said, dark, give me dark stories. So, um, I, you know, I kind of threw my hands out. Nazis, Satanists. I mean, how dark should we get? And then he said, Satanists, Satanists. So I had a simple plan. I was going to meet some Satanists. I was going to attend a black mass and I was going to write an article and that was going to be my payday. But when you're looking into things, there's always tangential stories. And one of those tangential stories was a cult called the Finders. And two of the Finders were busted with six kids in a Tallahassee, Florida park. And can, the kids were in such bad shape that concerned citizens called the Tallahassee Police Department. And the Tallahassee Police Department took one look at the two finders and took six, one look at the six kids and they arrested the finders. And the children were put in protective custody. And a doctor said that two of those kids showed signs of sexual abuse. And the U.S. Customs got involved because there was child pornography. And the D.C. police and U.S. Customs executed a search warrant on the finders warehouse. And they came across a lot of really weird stuff. Like the finders would, uh, the finders, it, there was one telex talking about the finders buying two children in China. And there was other information where they would act as babysitters and collect as much information on a family as they possibly could. And then there was pictures of naked children too that was found. So the guy who wrote the customs report, Ramon Martinez, he was really felt like the finders needed to be uh, prosecuted. 
And he didn't hear anything about his investigation for a while. He wrote this. uh, And actually, the report that he wrote, I put it in the Franklin scandal, the book, because it was my nexus into that weird universe. But I the document is so bizarre that I didn't think people would would believe it. So I put the entire document in. So Ramon Martinez went to the D.C. police to follow up on the search warrant and the things that they had impounded. And and he was told that the investigation into the finders had become, quote, unquote, a CIA internal matter and that there would be no further investigation. And that blew my mind. I mean, why is the CIA going to bat for a cult that's seemingly doing very bad things to children? How is that possible? I mean, it did not fit into my worldview. And I try to think of myself as somewhat enlightened. And I read a lot of books, but nonetheless, I didn't have a paradigm that fit into. And then that started my odyssey. That was 21 years ago. Um, And I went to Nebraska. The net was rife with another story like that about children being trafficked and the traffickers having CIA connections or being CIA assets. And I went to Nebraska kind of skeptical. There was a book that had been written about it. I didn't feel it was a very good book. It was by John DeCamp. It's called The Franklin Cover-Up. And I I think that he made a case for child abuse in the Omaha area, but I was kind of skeptical of a case for wider child abuse. And I was skeptical of the intelligence involvement. I was skeptical of blackmail. And I was skeptical that Boys Town kids were involved. Boys Town is the iconic orphanage on the outskirts of St. Paul, on the outskirts of Omaha. So I went there knowing that something had gone down, but I didn't think it was big and ugly and malevolent and nationwide. And then I got there And I discovered that it was big, ugly, malevolent, and nationwide, and it was probably hooked up to intelligence. And that really, that freaked me out. I mean, there was also a death threat, too. But what freaked me out much more than the death threat, that it was the very existence of this network. And I just, I left Nebraska. I was pretty freaked out. I'd been followed. There was a death threat. There was some other crazy stuff. I left Nebraska pretty freaked out. But I said to myself, you know, this is so evil. So many kids have been molested by this network. And and state and federal law enforcement has said that there wasn't even a network, that no kids were abused. And I was just, I was determined, write about it and expose it. And I spent seven years on that story. Traveled thousands of miles. And I live in New York City, which is the mecca of publishing and no one wanted to touch the story. No one wanted to touch the story as an article. No one wanted to touch the story as a book. And I had one agent and I gave it to her. And like, I was, no, <laughs> I was jettisoned from that agency. And then I had a second agent, James Fitzgerald, who is a good agent. And he tried to sell it. And I, I met with some publishers and they kept on talking about libel. And, and then finally some hippies in Oregon Trying Day, my favorite hippies of all time, I should add, were willing to publish it. And what they got that no one else got was that I had so much evidence at that point 
Well, can yeah. I say that Chris Milligan's been a guest on this show and twice actually, and he's one hell of a hippie who, whose father was in the CIA. So Gosh. I'm sure he didn't doubt much of what he read in your book with his background. No, he didn't doubt it. And But what he got that people in New York didn't get was that these people were so dirty and I had so, so much information on them that suing me would be counterproductive, that they would not. If we got into the discovery process in a lawsuit with interrogatories and depositions, there was going to be no way that they could stand up to the amount of information that I had and the amount of information that the discovery process would give us. So I published the book, Trende published the book, and I was kind of disappointed. It didn't have a lot of sales. We couldn't, people were not really, it requires some, uh, there's cognitive dissonance involved. When you accuse the government, aiding and abetting, when you cover up, the government covered up aiding and abetting child trafficking, or the government covered up child trafficking, which is aiding and abetting. And there were two, and this was a huge network. This was, this network was bigger than Epstein's network. I would say that it was, and it was around 10 to 12 years. And they also made a lot of child pornography. I mean, these were really malignant, evil people. And it required two grand juries in Nebraska to cover it up, a state and a federal grand jury. And then there was a grand jury in Washington, D.C. Most of the kids would be, a lot of the kids, I got like 200 flight passenger manifests. And, and most of them went to Washington, D.C. Were Lawrence King's fellow pimp, Craig Spence, had a mansion that was wired for audiovisual blackmail. And that's where a lot of the pedophilic parties would go down. And Spence was a CIA asset, too. And so that network was really evil. And, uh, and because I acquired the sealed grand jury deposition or grand jury exhibits and uh, for one of the grand juries that covered it up, they called it a carefully crafted hoax. I had all kinds of documentation. That grand jury could have easily indicted all those perpetrators, but they, that it indicted the kids that wouldn't recant their abuse on multiple counts of perjury. But I had a list of 60 victims, and it was my job to find those victims. And a lot of them were, for, were from dysfunctional families, lower socioeconomic families, and a lot of them had been sent to Boys Town, or 11 of them. There were 11 Boys Town students on that list. And a lot of them didn't use their social security number. They had drifted away from society. And they had also been in prison. So they had compromised their own credibility. So it was my job to find those former kids and get them to talk. And they were very damaged. But some of them were homicidal at the same time. There was one guy I wasn't able to find. I'm generally good at finding people, but there was one guy I wasn't able to find. His name is Rue Fox. And I hired this private investigator who was eventually able to find him. And she said to me, be careful of this guy. He is very violent. He's got a long track record. And actually, I went and visited Rue, and Rue was a very violent, scary guy. But over the course of about three weeks, I befriended him, and he ultimately gave me an interview. He just broke down crying. And that tough, vicious exterior was what he protected himself with. 
but inside of him was a very damaged child that had been molested, I think, starting at the age of six or seven, and then been sent to Boys Town where he was molested repeatedly, too. So, and then Boys Town, and a number of these kids in Boys Town that were molested were put into a psychiatric hospital afterwards. So their credibility would, it would be easy to disparage your credibility. And that book, people just didn't want to believe it. I couldn't, I live in the epicenter publishing, New York City, and no one wanted to touch that story. Even after I'd published the book, no one wanted to touch that story. And it was cognitive dissonance. I would uh, I would meet with an editor and a pu- or a publisher, and I'd tell them about the story. And a- at this point, I had lots of evidence. And I would look into their eyes, and I could see them saying to themselves, this is a horrible story, and I need to help Nick Bryant because all these kids were molested with impunity. Or... You know, I can just write Nick Bryant off as crazy, and I can have a nice dinner tonight with my family and not think about this anymore. So that kind of got me ostracized from um, New York publishing. Yeah. It's really a shame that, you know, cognitive dissonance, conditioning, but I think maybe people, they're so conditioned to live in this world where criminals don't get away with their crimes that when they see this infrastructure of abuse where there's a very clear path that these children are being funneled down and abused every step of the way i mean it's shocking and as a young person 29 years old you know being exposed to a major event like 9-11 at such a young age i have a feeling like my generation we're almost conditioned to be like oh yeah could be you know we've seen you know 9-11 unfold the way it did from such a young age so it's not all that surprising but from my research i found that there were other cases of this sort of thing going on in america even back pre-world war ii i'm not sure if you're familiar with north fox island i think it's in lake michigan but there michigan, were, yeah there were things going on there i don't know if that was the 50s or the 40s but is this something that politically has been going on for a long time in america on the in the upper echelons of, of society or is this something that is a, a maybe a, a product a byproduct I, of the cia an example alexander hamilton who is considered a saint. There's been a number of hagiographies written about him in a Tony Award-winning play. He was having an affair with a 23-year-old, and the 23-year-old's husband was blackmailing Alexander Hamilton. And this muckraking journalist came along and outed Hamilton for having this affair with this 23-year-old. And... Hamilton and Jefferson were antagonists, and Jefferson became president. And the journalist felt like Jefferson owed him an appointment because he outed Alexander Hamilton having this affair and showed his moral turpitude. And Jefferson didn't give him an appointment. And ultimately, this muckraking journalist outed Jefferson for having sex with one of his slaves, Sally Hemings, at least one of his slaves. So... Political blackmail is a time-honored tradition in America. And I've used this metaphor a number of times. I got to a blackmail photographer 
in Franklin's, when I was writing the Franklin scandal. And I was kind of new to the story, and I was saying, how does this work? And I've used this repeatedly. He said, it's like you're on a yacht, and it's a beautiful yacht, and it's a beautiful day, and you can have anything you want on the yacht. But if you decide to get off the yacht, then the people on the yacht are going to make sure that you drown. So there's zero incentive for someone to come forward because they're compromised. It's helping their career and they're getting all kinds of perks from that. But Timber Shedd of Tennessee came out last month and said, my colleagues are compromised. And that's the first time. I, you know, I've been screaming up from the rooftops for 21 years. But he came out and said, many of my colleagues are, have been compromised in motels and blackmailed. So I'm hoping that other politicians can come forward and be open about that. Right. But you'd have to be squeaky clean to make a statement like that or else you're going to be taken down. So he apparently is pretty clean. Right. Well, and I guess my question is more aimed towards the phenomena itself. Obviously, there are sick people that do evil things for any number of reasons. But when it comes to the reins of power in this upper echelon of society, is it that, you know, gay sex or, you know, BDSM and these things have become so less taboo than previous decades that now they have to push it up a notch or is this a sickness that's been around humanity for a long time the roman emperor tiberius was a pedophile reportedly a pedophile and he liked to kill the children that he had sex with so if that account is true then this has been with us for a long time and it's ingrained in cultures. Uh, the Afghan culture has Bashi boys, and the Japanese culture has samurais had boys that would take care of them. Uh, the Greek culture with Plato and Aristotle. So this is something that is recurrent in history, a theme that is recurrent in history. Yeah, it's very dark. And yeah, I think with uh, Hollywood and this, sort of keeping up with the Jones image milieu that we have here in America. I'm, you know, the average person is just sort of lulled into a stupor, into this uh, taken-for-granted state of affairs that, you know, everything's just right as we see on television. But, you know, you haven't just shown how the Franklin scandal has been covered up. You put Epstein's black book on the internet, right? So... I did indeed. Let's talk about that and maybe even how the Epstein saga connects with the Franklin scandal, if there are any connections, because there's the no finders are... But there's a lot of similarities. Okay. A lot of similarities. Both networks trafficked underage kids. Both networks had intelligence connections. Both networks deployed blackmail and grand juries were used to cover up these networks. And the Franklin network... Uh, three grand juries were used, as I said, in the Epstein network, one grand jury was used. And I think the Franklin network was bigger than the Epstein network, but the Epstein network was around for twice as long. I think yeah, I think Epstein probably trafficked children for about 25 years. Wow. So they have these similarities, except with the Franklin network, it was Republicans molesting little boys. And with the Epstein network, it's primarily Democrats molesting little girls. That seems to be our partisan divide. Yeah. Um, 
And on that note, before we venture into the Epstein case proper, you mentioned the Finders Cult earlier as one of the introductory cases for you that kind of opened the your eyes the, to this world. The introductory case. Yeah. Now, the Finders, they're sort of in the, the middle. Are they connected to Epstein at all? Because that case happened in between the Franklin scandal and when we knew about the Epstein situation. Well, actually, that was going on during the Franklin scandal. Okay. The, the finders were busted in 1988, and that's when the Franklin network was okay, right, probably right, right. at its apogee. Right. Okay. And then with Epstein, I'd given Franklin seven years of my life, and it was very dark, and I had to go to a lot of dark places and hear a lot of dark stories, and that kind of took a lot out of me. Uh, and then writing that book, researching and writing it took seven years. And then to have the sales, I thought I, we would do much better with the sales. And then to have that book. And now it's selling pretty well, actually. So that's a cool thing. But the sales at that point, there was just too much cognitive dissonance. People didn't want to listen to me. And then Epstein hadn't occurred yet. But I got a whiff of Epstein one in 2011 and looked at that grand jury that said that Epstein hadn't molested a single child, where there had been reports of Epstein molesting, you know, like three young girls a day. That was his, when his addiction would, was at its apex. I mean, he was, he would have three young girls a day. So when that grand, when I found out about that grand jury, it kind of reeked of a network when you see major legal aberrations like that, like with Franklin and Epstein, that kind of indicates that there might be a network going on. So I went down to Florida in 2012. I got Epstein's blank book and a bunch of other documentation too. And then I came back to New York and I did not, Franklin had taken a lot out of me. And I realized that I was going to have to investigate Epstein too, that I just couldn't, I just couldn't sit back. At that point in 2012, Epstein was like a lone pedophile. I mean, he had been running this network for a couple of decades, but, uh, but the media just didn't pick up on that or wouldn't pick up on that or couldn't pick up on it. I don't know. So I brought the black book back to New York City and I showed publishers and editors the black book. And I thought, okay, now here is irrefutable evidence. So there were a number of people, names that were circled. There was like scores of victims in the black book. I thought, how can a magazine out this black book? And no one touched it. No one was willing to touch the black book. And then Gawker finally published it with some accompanying articles that I'd written. And then all of a sudden, the floodgates open on the Black Book. And everybody's talking about the Black Book. And tons of ink have been spilt on the Black Book. And what's kind of disheartening about that is only one publication gave me credit for bringing the Black Book to light. And the rest of them, nothing about Nick Bryan. So it's kind of a... I find myself... I, I was... There was going to be that Epstein document dump in early January. And I was called by CNN and we talked and they said, 
because I was the guy that put the black book on the internet. They wanted me to talk about this cache of documents that was going to be made public. And so I had text messages with this producer throughout the day. And my, I started an organization called Epstein Justice because we can't let these perpetrators need to go to prison. And we have to understand why our government is covering up child trafficking, which is aiding and abetting child trafficking. So I started this organization. It's a 501c3 nonprofit organization. And the thing that I wanted to stress with this producer was that I wanted to talk about Epstein justice. I didn't mind talking about the black book. I didn't mind talking about the cache of documents that were about to be made public, but I wanted to talk about Epstein justice. So that was my last text to him. And then the next text I got from him is, we're going to go in a different direction. So, and the media is, I mean, that's what the media has done. It's just dug up salacious dirt on Epstein and these and his cohorts. No media has screamed for justice. That's how bankrupt, ethically bankrupt our media is. Yeah. That all these kids have been trafficked and the media only wants to dig up salacious dirt. I'm not aware, and I keep track of Epstein articles, I'm not aware of a single publication that has screamed for justice yeah. uh, or major media that has screamed for justice in the Epstein case. And on that note, you know, I remember hearing you for the first time on a conspiracy podcast, and I don't remember which one. It might have been the Higher Side Chats with Greg Carlwood. Um, but then, you know, shortly after you were on, you know, the Tim Dillon show and Matt and Shane's secret podcast and all these shows that I listen to for comedy, they're the only outlets that were taking you seriously, which I think says a lot about the state of the media, you know, climate that we're in. But I mean, also, you know, you as a serious journalist who has, you know, proven yourself, you know, gets, doesn't even get credit. And I'm sure now with the internet, the way it is, they just call this stuff conspiracy theory. How does that make you feel when you're reporting on an actual government conspiracy and they call you a conspiracy theorist? Yeah, that seems to be a popular moniker for me. In 1967, the CIA released a document and it's it was basically about people. In 1967, people were very, very skeptical of the Warren Commission and the subsequent report that had Lee Harvey Oswald as a lone shooter. The majority of Americans were skeptical about that. So the CIA produced a document that was given to editors and publishers and other people that had influence that said, these people that are calling the CIA that think that there's a conspiracy afoot with the Kennedy assassination, we need to brand them as conspiracy theorists. That is the term that they used. And then there were a number of bullet points at how you could disparage, quote unquote, conspiracy theorists. And the New York Times and Washington Post had used the term conspiracy theory or conspiracy theorist about once a year. But after that particular document by the CIA, then it just grows exponentially. So people don't realize when they use that term, they're drinking the Kool-Aid that the CIA wants them to drink. And they just shout out conspiracy theory and they have no idea that they drank a, a hefty amount of kool-aid I, I see it in my family i mean my family doesn't really read anything i write 
because they want to believe in a different type of America. Well, Nick, you're on the right show. It's called My Family <laughs> Thinks I'm Crazy for a Reason. And yeah, you know, I think that th this I identification, this self-identification as conspiracy theorists, in one way, it's kind of like we're taking that name back from the CIA. But in the same way, you have a great point. We're just falling right into their straw man or their catch-22 scenario that they set up. But when it comes to these crimes, as you put it, the government is aiding and abetting child trafficking. There's no other way to really define it. That's what it is on the bald face of it. Yeah. I mean, with Epstein, I mean, what other conclusions can you draw? I right. mean, talked about grand juries before. Grand juries are very easy to hijack. You just need one. A special prosecutor is chosen to prosecute a grand jury, and grand jurors are just people that have shown up for jury duty, and they've been funneled to a grand jury. A, a grand a, when it, it says like a grand jury has done this, it's like the guides of jurisprudence have spoken. But basically, a grand jury is just regular citizens that have shown up for jury duty, and they've been funneled to a grand jury. And the special prosecutor calls the witnesses and shows the grand jurors the exhibits that he thinks are germane. And they ultimately decide on whether or not to indict. But special prosecutors of grand jurors have so much. They could. There's a famous quote from a New York Supreme Court judge that said that grand jurors or special prosecutors, special prosecutors have so much power over grand jurors that they could get them to indict a ham sandwich. And. Grand special prosecutors could get grand jurors to indict a ham sandwich. They could get jurors to indict Mother Teresa. They could get jurors to indict anybody or not indict anybody. And that's what we saw in the Epstein case is that um, the state law enforcement knew of 23 victims, Epstein victims. Right. And only one of them was called by that grand jury. The special prosecutor was Barry Kirshner, and he skewered that little girl skewered her. Consequently, that's why that grand jury didn't return with any indictments against Jeffrey Epstein for child molestation. Yeah. It's really sad to see children put in that situation in a courtroom and, and be, you know, accused of, of lying. But when it comes to what we were just talking about, when you brought the book to Gawker, had Epstein come across law enforcement's radar at that point in time yet? Oh, absolutely. Epstein, what happened, what got the Epstein case rolling was a 14-year-old girl who told her parents that she'd been molested by Jeffrey Epstein. And her parents brought her to the Palm Beach Police Department. And the Palm Beach Police Department talked to her and she described Epstein's home as anatomy. Um, and then they launched an investigation, but they were... They were going after a billionaire who seemingly had a pretty clean record. So they were gingerly but diligent. And they ultimately collected enough evidence where they got the statements of five underage girls. And then they got the statements of people that corroborated those five girls. So they were set to go with indicting him on five different counts of child abuse. But that case was taken away from them and given to a grand jury. And that's very strange for for Florida, because usually only capital cases that would be end up in the death penalty are given to grand juries. So that's in a major anomaly. And 
The guy, the really unsung hero in the Epstein case that not too many people know about is Palm Beach Police Chief Michael Ryder. And Ryder could not let it go. He was quite vociferous because he knew, I mean, they had found 23 victims. So he knew that Epstein had molested a lot of girls. And he went to the feds. And then the feds said that they would do something. And then the feds had a list of over 30 girls. I've got the list. And Alexandra Acosta was the attorney general for Southern Florida at that point. And he was ostensibly going to prosecute Jeffrey Epstein. But he was told, and he's never denied this, he was told that Jeffrey Epstein was intelligence and it was above his pay grade and to back down. So he did. And ultimately, the state took care of Jeffrey Epstein. Um, there was one child abuse indictment tacked on to adult solicitation, and which should have given a, I mean, he was looking at 20 years. He got 18 months, and then he spent 13 months in a county jail, and he was able to go outside during the day and molest girls. I mean, he was molesting girls while he was at this jail. But Acosta, how this came out is he was Trump's labor secretary, and when he was being vetted by the Trump administration, they said, why'd you go so light on Epstein? And he said, well, I was told that Epstein was intelligence and to stand down. And there's only two people in the government that can tell a U.S. attorney to stand down. One is the president, one is the attorney general. Now, that message can be delivered by a minion of the president or a minion of the attorney general, but there's only one, there's only two people that can tell a U.S. attorney to stand down. So that's the kind of power that was deployed to cover up Jeffrey Epstein. And we're still seeing that kind of power deployed, keep the cover up hermetically sealed. Right. Yeah. It's absolutely, you know, it's a full press, no pun intended, from the press. When Trump is brought up, and, it, you know, this story has become a political football for the left only if Trump's name is involved, right? And, not so much the other way around, but where does Trump factor into this whole story? Because there have been some indications that he was involved, and then there are other indications that seem to suggest that he is actively against this whole circle of people involved with Epstein. I mean, the theories go both ways. Okay, so in the, with the Black Book, the Black Book ultimately, it was stolen by his house manager, Alfredo Rodriguez. And he tried to sell it to one of the attorneys that were launching civil suits at, at Epstein. And the attorney called the FBI. The FBI did a sting and acquired the black book. Rodriguez had circled names that he thought were in cahoots with Epstein. Trump's name is circled. Clinton's name is not, but Epstein has 25 contact numbers for Clinton. Trump's name is circled. Trump lied about not being at Epstein's home, a deposition subsequently proved that he was at Epstein's home. So he lied about that. Sarah Ransom, who this latest cache of documents that was released, she said that uh, Trump had uh, sex with one of the women. I don't think it was a minor, but I think it was one of the women. So there's indications that Epstein was pandering to Trump. We don't know if those were underage girls or they were adults of age. Well, do you think the timing of this story coming out says anything about Trump in presidency, maybe having this blackmail 
floating in his closet, so to speak, made him more eligible for that position? Do you think in those terms at all? Well, I mean, Trump, I mean, people want to believe in Trump. I get that because they think that their system is falling apart and that their legislators don't really protect them or care about them, which is true. I mean, 83% of Americans think that Congress isn't doing right by them, 83%. So a lot of Americans out there are extremely alienated and they feel like Congress is pretty much worthless regarding looking out for the best interests. So people want to believe in Trump, but Trump has been in bed definitely with the Italian mafia and probably with the Russian mafia. He's been part of the Epstein orbit for quite some time. I don't see how he could not be compromised. That's the thing with Donald Trump. I do not, given his business, his various businesses, building in the building industry, and I should say the construction industry, and given his kind of runaway libido, I think it would be very difficult for Trump not to be compromised. But the government and the media go after him very hard. (laughs) But what's interesting is the Washington Post ran an article on the Black Book, and they said that Trump's name was not circled in the Black Book, when it was. And and a number of people, we sent emails to the Washington Post telling them that Trump's name was, in fact, circled, but they never, they never recanted that. And so with Trump, I don't see how he could not be blackmailed, but he's pretty open. I mean, he's it's come out that he's paid adult porn stars and playboy bunnies for sex and that doesn't seem to and he's grabbed women you know by their crotch that doesn't seem to be an impediment to the people that vote for trump right well and i also i'm wondering maybe obviously we wouldn't know this unless we could read minds but on a speculative level maybe trump having uh you know this blackmail on others by being a part of it intrinsically he's able to compromise those who are around him i don't know maybe that was leverage for him somehow to get into that position and why they go so hard against him but seemingly have nothing on him i mean other than that possibly well uh, jeb bush he trounced jeb bush in the republican primary really made jeb bush look like a fool and the bushes are, have been long connected into blackmail, starting with Bush one. I mean, he was actually the CIA director, and he comes up in Franklin pretty heavily. And it would, I mean, he insulted Jeb Bush, and I have a hard time that the Bushes would just let that go. Mm. So it's very difficult when I'm talking about Donald Trump. There's there, it just doesn't make sense with him. There's so many things that don't make sense with Donald Trump becoming the president, and then. It's just, it's, it's a difficult call. Well, I respect, I respect your, you know, comments on it. And yeah, I'm not for or against him. I'm just curious how this uh, factors into his sort of meteoric rise. Obviously he capitalized on, you know, the populist urge, this feeling that I and many Americans have that you yourself kind of verified that, Congress and the Senate and president, they're not really working for us. And you know, the Epstein cover-up kind of proves that, that four presidents and 
every congressman and senator, I mean, they've all remained quiet on this over the past, what is it, 20 something years that this has all gone down. So yeah, clearly we have incompetency at the very least or corruption, you know, I think maybe, yeah, maybe Trump is twisting their arm because he knows, hey, I'm corrupt, but I'm not opposed to spilling the beans on how corrupt you guys are too. So I've got a letter sent by the House's Committee on Oversight and Reform to uh, the Commissioner of Florida Department of Law Enforcement. Okay. And it's delving into Florida's investigation of Epstein and wanting to know what happened. And it's signed by Carolyn Maloney, Jimmy Raskin, Jackie Spire, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, and Lois Frankel. So this is the Congress asking Florida what's going on. Now, I've got this document. I haven't seen it anywhere else. And what's really interesting is I've been trying to get one of them to to talk about this document. And they refuse to do that. And I'm at the point now where I'm going to put it on Twitter and have people and provide an email and have people because they're not getting back to me on this. I've tried three times. So I'm, I've kind of reached my limit. I've never seen the document anywhere else. I think I'm probably the only guy that's got the document or one of the few people that's got the document, maybe the only guy in the press that's got the document. I don't know. But the House seemed to want to mount an investigation into Trump, but then all of a sudden, Nothing happened. Right. Right. Or into Epstein and in Florida and nothing happened. And and maybe like this attorney Acosta, maybe there were powers above them that said no. But if our you know, our legislative branch is working the way it should, they shouldn't have anybody over their heads telling them not to do that other than the judicial and the executive branch, right? I mean, that's kind of the, but who's supposed to be about that? that out the window with, uh, with the blackmail and the compromise. Uh, Lauren, right. uh, Clarence Thomas, uh, on my blog, you can go to nickbrynnyc.com, and I've written a blog on Clarence Thomas. He's obviously compromised. He, his name actually comes up in, with my Franklin investigation. And he is obviously compromised. Kavanaugh, Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh, I mean, there was one woman that came forward that said she was sexually assaulted by him, and it was pretty easy to... But there were other women that did come forward that have said that. So I think that a number of the people on the Supreme Court have been compromised. I don't know how many, um, but I, I absolutely believe that Clarence Thomas is compromised. Yeah, there's many compromised individuals in our government, and I think it's about time that people start you know, shaking things up. And I'm really happy to be able to share your message with my audience and keep pushing this message forward because it's incredibly important. Now, on the point of something you mentioned right at the beginning of our conversation, uh, the gentleman asking you to go dark and you sa- he said, I want to learn about Satanism, right? Yeah. This is interesting because you know, the satanic panic is often used to discredit any, you know, pedophile ring allegations. I've even seen some researchers find evidence to suggest that Satanism and some cults that maybe can be called superficially satanic, they're propped up by these same 
child trafficking groups in order to create this sort of, you know, distraction or this, this case of like, oh, yeah, no, that's obviously kooky. It's too wacky to be true. And they'll do things like cut up animal body parts and throw them in places to give this, you know, spectacle of, oh, yeah, it's just these crazy Satanists. What are your thoughts on that? There was a satanic panic and there was overkill. But the pendulum is starting to swing the other way. There's a psychologist who just wrote a piece for Psychology Today, which is very mainstream, where she talked about her ritual abuse. In the Franklin scandal, there are three victims that talked about ritual abuse. And there is there are different types of occults, but there I believe that there is an occult path where where defiling innocence is like the highest sacrament. It's kind of like instead of protecting innocence, like we want to do, it's the values turned on their head and it's defiling define, um, innocence. And I wrote a blog on McMartin and I showed that although there isn't any Satanism, Ray Bucky was guilty of molesting children at that school. I've got no doubts about that. And you can read my blog and there's plenty of evidence about that. And there, and also on an, uh, one of my podcasts, or a few of my podcasts have gotten into ritual abuse. There are studies, British um, Psychological Association, I think that's her name, came out with a study that found that 15% of therapists encounter ritual abuse. So I do believe that ritual abuse is a reality. How widespread it is, I don't know. I mean, if this organization is concluding that 15% of therapists come across ritual abuse. It's, that doesn't mean it's ubiquitous, but that means that it's somewhat prolific. And there's various studies about it, too. So, And if your audience is interested in that, I, there's an extreme abuse survey that was given to about 1,200 people who had undergone extreme abuse. And I, I, have two, I did two podcasts on it. And I would suggest that your audience, if they want to pursue that any further, look at my Extreme Abuse Survey podcasts. Right. Yeah, I'll link that in the description for folks. And I ask because, you know, it's it's something that's come up and I do not doubt at all that people have, you know, fallen victim to SRA. But it is interesting to think that maybe political groups, uh, you know, mafia criminal organizations would use the sensationalism of the satanic panic as a smokescreen. In other words, you know, uh, satanic sort of imagery would be implanted in these victims' memory by a hypnotist so that when they did speak with an actual licensed therapist who could get them help, they wouldn't take their story to the legal ends that it might need to go because their actual evidence has been sort of muddied by the coercion of a hypnotist who implants, you know, whatever ideas in their head. I mean, it's, it in itself is a little bit of sensational, you know, Occam's razor, of course. But what are your thoughts on that? Have you heard of this going on in psychotherapy? A number of people have, well, okay, so there was the False Memory Syndrome Foundation. Right. And it said that there is no repressed memories and there hasn't been any ritual abuse. It was very overt about that. Unfortunately, that organization was one of the founders of that organization was a child molester. 
Peter Fry. And he conscripted Ralph Underwager, who was a theologian and psychologist who said that pedophilia is God's will. So those are the people that started the False Memory Syndrome Foundation. And they got tremendous traction because they had a lot of money behind them. Frontline did a laudatory, did two pieces on the False Memory Syndrome Foundation where it was laudatory. The New Yorker was laudatory towards the False Memory Syndrome Foundation. So it got this mainstream media behind it, and it played on the satanic panic. And what's really interesting, there are it had an advisory board or scientific board, and three or four of the guys on the scientific board said, we're part of CIA mind control. And they said that you cannot implant memories into people's minds when they admitted to planting memories into people's minds. So the False Memory Syndrome Foundation was a house of cards, but it served a function. And the people that were part of the specialists that were part of, quote-unquote specialists, that were part of the False Memory Syndrome Foundation, they would fly all over and debunk child abuse. And they got really hefty reward for doing that. So... If you look at the False Memory Syndrome Foundation, it was a sham, but it had enough it had enough money behind it to keep it going. And it had those CIA guys on the scientific board. I mean, it was like I said, it was a house of cards that collapsed a couple of years ago. Um, there's no longer a false memory syndrome foundation, but people still believe in the false memory syndrome where therapists implanted ideas in the minds of uh, vulnerable people. Uh, thousands and thousands of times. And this is what's interesting. The DSM-5, which is the Bible of psychiatric diagnosis, considers dissociative amnesia a valid, uh, valid, a, uh, a valid diagnosis. And, doesn't, and false memory syndrome isn't even mentioned in the DSM-5. So according to modern psychiatry, People do have dissociative amnesia, which causes repressed memories. There's things that happen to them that are really bad, that like sexual abuse, that they repress. And it comes out at a later date. That happens all the time. And so it's kind of amazing that the False Memory Syndrome Foundation has gotten so much, it's been given so much value. Uh, in our society, and that the mainstream media has been behind it when it's a house of cards, and dissociative amnesia is a valid diagnosis in the DSM-5, right? which is, as I said, the Bible of psychiatric disorders, labeling psychiatric disorders. Right. Right. And I'm glad you're here to clarify, because it, it's a very thorny subject, obviously, and I have trouble articulating it without sounding like I'm for what I'm against, but just to clarify, you know, I'm trying to paint the picture to the audience that these criminals are going one step ahead and obfuscating the situation on multiple layers, bringing in people to go and discredit victims, bringing in therapists to, you know, discredit victims. I mean, really, it comes down to making the victims, as you pointed out with the Franklin scandal, where they would put them in the psychiatric hospital, turn them into drug addicts or worse, you know, anything to discredit them and make them unviable to 
testify on a witness stand, right? And that's how these criminals perpetuate their illicit trafficking. And plus, there's another variable there. If you molest a number of kids together, I mean, that's omerta. That's the mafia bow of silence. I mean, if you're going to molest kids together, no one's going to talk about that. You're on the yacht, and no one's going to get off that yacht, to use a prior metaphor. So that's a very powerful bonding experience for malevolent people, is molesting kids together. Yeah. It's sickening. It it is, you know, unfortunately how these higher order criminal organizations operate, you know, and it's not unique to America. I'm sure it's not unique to this time period either, but it is something that needs to be dealt with. And, you know, I wonder, do you think that the laws in place, the justice system that we have in place is capable of prosecuting people on this level? Do you think that the system, the gears of justice are just being kind of clogged right now? Well, I mean, we've got a federal government that's aiding and betting child trafficking. I mean, you know, there are good judges, don't get me wrong. But when the rot is so high up and so perfidious, it's going to have a trickle down. That's There's going to be that, that reality. So that's why Americans need to come together with Epstein justice. And we need to get those perpetrators indicted. And as important, we need to know why the government is aiding and betting child trafficking. I mean, I have some pretty strong ideas about that, but we need the government to tell us why it is aiding and betting child trafficking. And people are despondent and alienated, but I mean, do you want to live in, in the cesspool that our government has created or is creating with 83% of Americans being completely disillusioned with Congress? I mean, do you think that's going to get better? Do you think that the that the Congress passing laws that allow us to be spied on at will by the NSA, do you think that's going to get better? The government creating laws that make the rich richer and the poor poorer? I mean, that's been a trend since Reagan. I mean, do you think that's going to get better? These things aren't going to get better. We have to to take Epstein and we have to drill down on Epstein. And then we will come across the sewer that our legislators are swimming in. And and we can clean out that sewer. It's possible, but it's going to require will of the people. Yeah. And uh, we need people on the left and we need people on the right. I think that this is the only issue that can really bring together people on the left and people on the right, because now they're just so polarized. It's an easy divide and conquer at this point. Right. But our message at Epstein Justice, people on the right are embracing it, but we're, people on the left aren't embracing it as prolifically as people on the right. So I'd really like to figure that out and figure out how to reach people on the left. I am not on the left. I am not on the right. As soon as I got in the Franklin scandal, I gave up. I'm independent. I haven't voted for Republican or Democrat for many years. At this point, I wouldn't, just because I know how perfidious the system is. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of people are at that same point, you know, especially seeing all of the 
you know, frankly, fuckery that's gone on, especially over the past four or five years, no matter where you stand on uh, the medical malpractice industry, as I like to call it. Um, But I think it it was used to divide the left and the right. Uh, And, you know, with Epstein, it certainly seems like the left has thrown it right in the QAnon conspiracy crap rabbit hole, you know, box, right? When, as you've very eloquently laid out, there's a big case for this. Um, But with the Epstein case, I think it really hit You know, the American zeitgeist with the Epstein didn't kill himself meme. What are your thoughts on that whole situation? I don't even like to speculate on that. Uh, It's There were many anomalies that night. I think Epstein was allowed to kill himself or maybe he had some help. I don't know. But uh, I try to focus on justice for the victims. That's for the big battle. A network called me, I don't know, a couple months ago. And wanted me to comment on whether or not Epstein killed himself. And I said, that is not the issue. The issue is we need to get these perps indicted. We need to have the government explain itself. Why it covered up in child trafficking. Why it's saying in child trafficking. That that is the issue that we have to deal with. And I don't really want to get off onto tangential issues. Because that's all the media has been about with this case. is tangential issues. Salacious dirt. Things like that. Right. Right. And I mean, from the beginning, they've tried to cover it as, you know, oh, dirty old men and and teenage girls, you know, what's wrong with that? Right. And it's clearly not. It's women or children under, you know, even as low as 10, 11, 12 years old. And that's just absolutely horrible. Yeah. Than that. Yeah. So and the media has sanitized it. The government and media have said that seem to have com- concluded that the youngest victim was 14. Right. Um, which is a lie. And the media also hasn't, the media hasn't given us an idea. Epstein and Maxwell were vicious people, vicious. And the media hasn't shown Epstein and Maxwell to be vicious people at all. Right. Um, they think that it's highly sanitized. It's very unfortunate. Yeah, it's disgusting to see how they've sanitized it from the brutal reality to this, you know, American teenage dream Hollywood crap, you know, is really what it is. Well, you're young and idealistic. We need young and idealistic people to join us at Epstein Justice. We need young idealists with lots of energy. Well, I'm with you. That aren't alienated. And we're right there at EpsteinJustice.com. You can look us up. We've got a petition that you can sign. We've got a form letter that will go to your legislators, your federal legislators. And also you can leave your name and email and we will contact you. Excellent. And that is all linked in the description. EpsteinJustice.com, NickBryantNYC.com. Is that the best place for people to follow up to read your article? And where can they buy your books? And I... I've got two books right now that deal with this subject matter, The Franklin Scandal and Confessions of a D.C. Madam, The Politics of Sex, Lies, and Blackmail. I've got a book coming out next month about Watergate. And Watergate, at the hub of Watergate, was a CIA blackmail honey trap. And that's been hidden for years. And Woodward and Bernstein are very prolific liars. Um, That's also been covered up for years. 
So I think that the book that's coming out is called The Truth About Watergate, A Tale of Extraordinary Lies and Liars. I think that the time is right for a book like that. Yeah. And I think on the heels of your other work, hopefully that will bring in some of the older generations who have a more visceral memory of Watergate and how that whole honeypot thing was never mentioned in the media coverage of Watergate. They never mentioned that the Democratic politicians were going over there and messing around with hookers on tape. And that's really how the CIA was bugging everyone, right? I mean, that's... It really gives... A, I've studied Watergate pretty heavily to write this book. And I wrote... There, there's been amazing stuff Amazing books that have been written about Watergate, but they're all very big and they're all very complex. And what my job was to make Watergate as understandable as possible. It's a conspiracy within a conspiracy and it's very complex. But I think the truth about Watergate is about as simple as we're ever going to see Watergate. Hopefully people will be able to get behind it and get edified by that book. Well, Nick, you have my support, and I look forward to that book, as well as whatever we can do as an audience here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast to help EpsteinJustice.com. So folks, go over to the website, fill it out, get your name on that petition and that email list there, and join this movement, because we need to take our country back from these corrupt pedophiles. They're pedophiles. And uh, yeah, they're... And if they're not pedophiles, they're just malevolent, malignant souls. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, well said. There are other pathologies running around, running our government. Well, yeah, it's a carnival of depraved souls, it seems. Yes. And, and we need to expose it before it's too late. But Nick, bravo. Thank you for all your great work. Thank you for joining us here on the show. And until next time, folks, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. Ladies and gentlemen, that was our conversation with Nick Bryant, someone who I believe is a very important person in the past 10 years, especially uh, as far as his journalistic work goes. Uh, I don't know that we would even know about Epstein if he hadn't done the work that he's done. So kudos to Nick Bryant. Please go to EpsteinJustice.com. Share it on social media. Share it with your friends. Spread the word. Let people know that, you know, this whole story is not over just because Epstein's dead and Ghislaine Maxwell has been charged. So, uh, and I do hope to have Nick Bryant back on. There are several things that I did not ask him about that I wanted to ask him about. I wasn't aware that he only had an hour to record. The uh, system that I use to book guests, this calendar program that I use, it tells the guests that the conversations are two hours long. But that doesn't mean that the guest always uh, anticipates staying that long. So uh, hopefully we'll get Nick Bryant back on. But this is a short one for you guys. I really appreciate everybody tuning in to this episode uh, no ads to interrupt this episode because it's so short but we are going to have ads on the front and back end of this episode so if you want an ad-free version of the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast support the show on patreon or substack those are the best places to go 
all sorts of different content there depending on your preference whether you're a reader maybe you want to view some videos you can go over to the rockfin although i will say it does seem like we we may be uh closing the door on rockfin at some point i don't know the numbers on rockfin don't look too hot i uh, haven't been getting a lot of traction there lately so i'm gonna start putting videos on rumble tiktok and twitter uh those seem to all be platforms where people are watching videos now of course we have a youtube channel uh, i'm still going to be uploading stuff to rockfin but uh yeah i don't know it doesn't seem like a lot of people are using rockfin anymore um i know the view count on the videos has gone down quite a bit um so yeah we'll see what happens i don't know maybe it's just the time of year or something i don't know but uh, either way Lots of great stuff in the works. I got a ton of people booked this month for interviews, and uh, this is certainly a milestone guest. I'm very fortunate to have gotten in contact with Nick Bryant, and lucky I feel lucky to have had him on the show because this is a, a monumental case, and I, I really don't think we've even begun to see the beginning of how this is going to unfold on the american political stage so uh yeah hopefully we'll get nick back on soon and thank you folks for tuning in share this episode with your friends this is definitely an important one share it on social media send it to people who you think may be on the fence about this whole thing or maybe just don't know but are open to it uh, it's definitely a topic that is of a prime importance I think we should all be stepping up to take care of the children because they can't stand up for themselves, right? So who's going to do it if we don't? All right, folks, with that, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. So um, We've had a good couple of weeks of shows. You know, Mark is doing a great job, even yeah. though he drives me fucking nuts yeah. sometimes. He's great. No, he's done a great job. He's done a great job. Good job, Mark. You can call uh, me Mark Palmer, Mark Palmer's cool. Mark Palmer's... It's a beautiful day to be alive. Motherfuckers, it's a beautiful day. Beautiful day. It's a beautiful day to be alive. That's all I got to say. I don't think it's about money. I think they have so much. It's just about... It's a spiritual war, dude. It's so much farther. There's more power with spring flowers than pseudo-intellectuals filled by hate with the face sour. When it comes to the hour of reckoning, recollect, reconnect with days happening. Yeah, are you frowning or laughing? Are you making the grade or barely passing? Caught in the asinine like the afterlife. Obsessed with darkness after you master light. Cause it's faster than a blink. When it's a bastard, latch to the clank, clang The money don't mean a damn thing, think Happiness ain't coming from the bank, dang I'm out here daydreaming The spirit's the egg, the self is the semen uh, And that's cause life is the child And it takes a village to give it the illest style So, if your family think you crazy mm, And you ain't got a village No, you always got a place here Come kick it, we chillin' Exactly, dude. You get it, bro. You're so smart, everybody. You're so smart. 
feel like I'm waking up for the first time Crusty's on my third eye, but I'm back to the grind Pop the blinds open, let the sun shine Feel it on my skin like it's been sometimes Sometimes, depression got me flaking like Sisyphus Others got me messing with mania like Icarus And meditation helps with the sickness Some say it's human condition, but it just isn't There's more power in spring flowers The circular thoughts that leave the mind devoured Blurred lines between reality and fiction And some politicians get dirtier than dishes But for a minute just forget about the government I'm looking at you and I and where the love went Cause we don't need a fucking village full of cynics Need a family to foster a life worth living if it isn't And your family think you crazy Yeah And you ain't got a village I know you always got a place here mm. Come kick it, we chillin' yeah. I'm a conspiracy boy Mark Palmer's cool. How are you, brother? I'm great, man. How are you?